Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the book of Romans. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 6. Um, I'll do a little bit of introduction. By the way, if you lost your journey, like after the first month, I found one. Uh, and it's got like very good handwriting and good insights. So it's right here. If you're looking for your journey, you've lost it and you had to go get another one. Maybe that one's yours. It has no name. I encourage you to write, write, oh, write your name inside your book. Um, so that we can know, oh, I just messed up the mic, I'm sorry, hold on. This thing can drive you crazy. So, uh, you know, talk amongst yourselves for a second. All right, I think that's good. I'm going to have to just leave it. This thing drives me crazy. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I'll review Romans, what we've done and what we're doing. But you can go ahead and open Romans chapter 6, that's where we'll be. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy that you've given to us in Christ. I pray for this morning as we look at Romans chapter 6, possibly one of my most favorite books in the Bible, Romans. I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to the truth of it and that as we see the teachings on killing sin and sanctification and that there's no possible way that a Christian could ever tolerate sin in their lives, that we wouldn't just kind of shake our heads and agree and preach to the choir and think that, all right, but instead we would stop, think about our own hearts and lives and our, our own battle that we either wage or don't wage against sin in our lives. We love you and I just pray for your mercy and I know I need your help pray that anything I say would be from you and not from myself. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last week, we did Romans chapter 1 through 5. Chapters 1 through 5. And as we were doing Romans chapters 1 through 5, um, the big idea of what's going on in Romans chapters 1 through 5 is Paul is explaining this concept of justification by faith alone. So salvation, I'll explain what that means. Salvation or saved. You ever heard somebody say, hey, you need to be saved? And you're like, saved from what? What are you talking about? Um, the, the, the idea of being saved is really kind of four parts, if you will. And if we use, you know, pray and receive Jesus in your heart. You know, that Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, but salvation, as you look at the entire scriptures, is really kind of... Uh, falls under the umbrella of a lot of things. So first, there's this thing called regeneration. So that's that's the idea that God opens the eyes of your heart, illuminates the eyes of your heart. And now this message that I've been talking about, about being able to confess Christ, be, be forgiven of all your sin, all those kinds of things. First, regeneration has to happen. In John 3, it's called born again. And that just means that you are now able to understand the good news of the gospel. Your heart and eyes have been regenerated. And when you do that, you put your faith in Jesus. And that, this is all part of salvation. Regeneration, then after that, is justification. That's what we talked about last week, which is God looks at all of us who are guilty. And because we put our faith in Christ, bangs the gavel 
and says, you're innocent. And you're like, what about the, what about the, um, the penalty? Like, there's still supposed to be some kind of penalty. And then he, as he says, takes off his robe, sends out his son. And his son says, yeah, somebody's going to take the penalty. But instead of you taking it, you get to be forgiven of your sin. And you get all the righteousness of the, my son who lived a perfect life. And I'm going to put all the punishment on him. That's justification. That's the, the moment you ask Jesus into your heart and you become a Christian, that's where God declares you righteous. That's called justification. So this is what salvation is. Regeneration, justification. There's something in the middle. And then the last one is glorification. This is whenever you die and you, your body is glorified. Or the best way to say it is um, we won't sin anymore uh, because we'll be in heaven. Our, our corrupt nature won't be in us anymore and we'll be like in some ways, Christ's resurrected body. Now, those first three things, if we're talking about who does those things, okay, can you open the eyes of your heart to see and understand the gospel? No, God does that. Justification, are you allowed to be the judge and bang down the gavel and call yourself innocent? No, only God can do that, right? So regeneration and justification are all God. And then we've got glorification. Are you able to um, change your sinful body into a non-sinful body and that you'll be like Christ's resurrected body. No, none of you can do those things. So we have this, this other one, which is the moment we get saved until we die, we're in this process called sanctification, being set apart, becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus. Now, all of that is salvation. So I think we're tracking with, I think we're understanding everything I'm saying. Today, we're going to talk about sanctification. We're gonna talk just about sanctification. Now, the other three are things all that God does Sanctification is different. Sanctification is God does it and we do it. God is working and causing us and bringing us to be more holy, but also we are working in a sense with God to become more holy, to become more Christ-like. It's the only one of all the things of all those things where it's not just all God. In the in the end, it's, it is God, but we are also and there's an absolute, without question, definite part you play in sanctification. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is sanctification, that how God and us work together to become more Christ-like, sin less, become more holy, become more like Jesus. Now, as I said, chapter 6 is really part of a whole. So chapter 6, 7, and 8 is talking about sanctification. Objections are being raised, and Paul is going to talk about how sanctification looks in the life of the Christian. Here's where it gets tricky. Chapter 6 is where he talks about our work and then chapter 8 is where he starts bringing in the work of the Spirit. That's how God works. And so today, I'm only going to be talking about our work. So it could feel like, as I'm preaching this sermon, well, it sounds like to me, Fudd's saying everything's up to us. And it's not. Chapter 6 is part of a, part of a, a whole. So I encourage you, please go read chapter 7 and 8 today and see how... God himself works with us in our sanctification, how the Spirit works with us. But today, in this particular text, we're, we're talking about salvation, but we're talking about sanctification, and specifically, your work, your active role as a believer in Jesus in being sanctified or becoming more Christ-like or killing sin. That's what we're talking about. And I'm, as I concentrate on your work, I am not in any means diminishing the work of the Spirit. It's just in chapter 8. And as I was typing notes, I realized... Um, I get about four pages, and that means about 55 minutes, and I hit four pages, and I didn't even get through all of chapter six, and I was mad. So um, I only get, you know, four pages, and then I realize I can't talk anymore. So just realize that's what's going on. That's what's happening here. Now, um, I want you to see, 
that Paul is perceiving two objections that are going to be raised. And they sound very similar. They sound very similar in chapter 6. One is in verse 1 and the other is in verse 15. So let's look at the first, the, the two questions. What does this union with Christ talk about? Two questions about our union with Christ, our justification. Question one comes from verse one. It is, are we to continue so that grace may abound? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? In other words, okay, Paul, this message from the gospel, chapters one through five, sounds so amazingly awesome. Um, it sounds like I can do whatever I want. And as a matter of fact, it sounds like you're saying, I should do whatever I want. It sounds like the more I sin, the more God has to like abound in grace to forgive that sin. And so we always want to see God abound in grace. Like if God's abounding in grace, that's good. Everybody's getting to see God abounding in grace. And so for everyone to see that, the way that I should contribute to everybody getting to see that is just do a whole lot of sin. And the more I sin, the more God abounds in grace to forgive my sin. And then everybody gets to see God abound in grace. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Because this message seems too good. It sounds like I should just sin more. And then Paul answers that, no, <laughs> like by no means. And so that's the first question. And that's literally all the time we're going to have today is me answering the first question um, in chapter, in, in verse one. He answers that question in verses one through 14. He actually has two answers. So we're going to look at those two answers to question one. However, I didn't get to preach verse 15 and following. So I'm going to very shortly do it right now. Um, there is question two in verse 15. And it sounds very similar. Look what it says. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Now, you'll notice all he's doing is taking verse 14 and then just making it in a question where it says, 14, we'll no longer, uh, for sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. You could go the law route. Tell me all the 600 and something rules, God, because I want to keep those. I don't want to go the faith route. I want to keep the laws perfectly. And if I do all those, oh, I've already broken them. Only one. If I ever break one, I'm done. So I can't go the law route. So <laughs> the, I can either do that and fail miserably, or I can go the grace route. And so it sounds like, again, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Since we're not under law anymore, I can just be under grace, and God can just give me all kinds of forgiveness, and it's no big deal. And he answers that question as well. And this is basically what he says. Um, no, you see it right there. Uh, by, no mean, by no means, it says it right there at the end of 15, uh, because the gospel says, and here's, here's the, the second question right there in 15 and following, here's the answer to that. There's only one answer. Basically, it says, the gospel says uh, that you're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're a servant of God. We, I want you to make sure you know, in the Greek, uh, bond, servant, slave, this word slave right here, and servant, are similar words. We just think, serve, I'm a servant. I come and I set up chairs and that's what God wants. You would never call yourself, I'm a slave to remedy. I come up here and I set up chairs and put out cards and you know, I lead a community group. You wouldn't think that. But the Bible's trying to draw that same language. It's trying to say, you're not a slave to sin anymore, but now you're a slave or servant of God. So of course you don't sin anymore because you're either gonna be a slave to sin or a slave to God. No one's free. No one's free. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. So no, you don't keep sinning just because you're not under law, but under grace. Because you're a slave to God or a servant to God now. So that was, that was question two, and that's all I can actually give you. I, I would love to unpack more of uh, those verses, but I can't. So here we are, back to verse one. Question one. 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or does the gospel, this message of the gospel, leave me then as a believer in Jesus with incentive or power to change my sinful practices? Does the gospel actually leave me with an incentive? It doesn't seem like there's any incentive. What's the incentive? Or what's the power to change the sinful patterns that I had as, a, as, as an unbeliever? Or you could say it this way. Does the message of salvation by grace alone lead me just to stay unchanged in the realm of morality? Does that just and stay the same? Is it, is it a big deal? It seems like it should. Because the more I sin, the more grace abounds. And that seems like it's good. Like God's, God's grace is abounding. We want that to be seen. Answer is... Um, given to us in verses 1 through 14, which I'm going to unpack. And here's, here's the one thing I want us to, to understand. Um, chapter 6 is answering the objections that Paul is perceiving that he's giving. And here's the thing. These two answers to that question don't just have implications for the Romans. Instead, listen, oh, it's so important. They have massive massive implications for you and I every single day of our life. So this isn't just some ethereal, theoretical, conceptual thing that you can kind of think about once every, you know, six months and come back to. What you're going to hear today has massive, massive implications about the way you live your life every single day. Because we're talking about sanctification, not God's work, but our work, and if you're honest, and I'll, I'll just be straight out honest with you, my work in sanctification, there's a lot. <laughs> there is a lot. I got a whole lot of work to do. Hopefully you would be honest and say the same for you. So what you're going to hear today has massive implications of the way you're going to live. Massive. All right, so there's two answers that he's going to give to this. The first answer is going to be in verses 3 through 10. The second answer is going to be in 11 through 14. So we're going to look at the first answer that's in verses 3 through 10. But before we get to that, I want you to see verse 2. Verse 2 sets the foundation for us to be able to answer this. So by no means, how can we, so talking about Christians exclusively, who here it is, this is the foundation how can we answer? He asks this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So in order for us to understand what, what, he's being, what he's saying, we have to understand what he means by this term died to sin. What does die to sin mean? Because this chapter helps us, chapter 6 help, helps us really, it tells us how to experience the good news of the gospel. How to experience the good news of the gospel. I want to know how am I supposed to experience. What does die to sin mean? It's crucial for us to understand what this means. Now, um, let's talk about what, how you should not exactly understand die to sin. It doesn't mean this. This is, this is going too far the wrong way. Die to sin, some people might say, it means you never want to sin again. Now, does that match up with any of your actual experience as a Christian? No. There are times where you want to sin. So dying to sin doesn't mean that God's going to completely erase your wants to sin. Temptations will come, and you will choose sometimes to sin. 
So it doesn't mean that we'll never want to sin. But this might be saying it just a little too less. It doesn't mean, saying die to sin doesn't, doesn't also mean that we never ought to sin. While that's true, and I think obvious, that we never ought to sin, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying here. It doesn't, it does, dying to sin doesn't also mean, it doesn't mean that we're just slowly moving away from sin and sinning less. While, again, that's obvious and true, that doesn't seem to be what Paul, exactly Paul's saying when he uses the phrase die to sin. And it doesn't just mean this. It doesn't mean, oh, you're no longer guilty of sin. While, again, that's true. That's justification. Again, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying when he says die to sin. So what does, when he says you have died to sin, how can you, die to sin, how can you live in it? What does it mean? This is what it means. The, the concept or the foundational piece of understanding this question in verse one of dying to sin, it means this, that you as a believer in Jesus no longer are under the rule or reigning power of sin. You used to be as an unbeliever, but now it used to rule you. It used to reign over you. You had no possible way to escape what it told you. But now as a believer, it means that you have been moved away from its ruling and reigning power. It means that there still might be some power in you, but it doesn't rule or reign over you. It means that there may be for the trajectory of your Christian life as you're walking through life and and having sin that there might be some battles that you might lose, but the whole of the war has already been won. Think about that. In, In battle, the war's won, but sometimes there's still some battles happening and you might lose those battles, but it doesn't matter. Because the war has already been achieved and we've won the war. That's what it's talking about here when it says you've died to sin. It means that sin no longer has any rule or reign over you. But God does. Keller says it this way. Previously, those sinful desires so reigned and ruled over us that we could not see them even as sinful. And thus we could not resist these temptations to sin. We were completely under their control. Now, however, sin no longer can domineer us. We have the ability now to resist and rebel against their dictates. Before you became a Christian, when sin, temptation, you literally could not say no to it. It dominated you. But now as a believer, and this might not match up to your experience, you're like, you don't know that sin that I just cannot kick. The truth is, it does not rule and reign over you anymore. It does not. And that's why Paul says, how can we who died to sin, it doesn't rule and reign over us anymore, still live in it? We can't. Martin, Mark, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, he was a medical doctor, became a pastor, and they call, just kept calling him the doctor. We must differentiate between what is true of our position as a fact and our experience. What he says is that every person in the world at this minute is either under the rule and reign and the, the reign and rule of sin, that's unbelievers, or else they're under the reign and rule of grace, that's Christians. It is either one or the other. He cannot have a foot in each position. He is either in Adam or he is either in Christ. So because you've died to sin, because the Bible is saying you have died to sin, then you don't have to give in to sin anymore. So should we keep on sinning? By no means, because you've died to sin. So this is what it really means. It doesn't just mean, dying to sin doesn't just mean that you're going to change your outward morality, take a new interest in Bible study, 
and um, find a place to serve in the church. You might do those things, but that doesn't, doesn't mean that's what death to, death to sin is. It doesn't mean that you're just going to... Um, dying to sin means this, that sin is no longer the water you swim in. It's no longer the air you breathe anymore. You've been pulled out of that air. You've been pulled out of that water and placed in a new complete environment that you as a believer will no longer tolerate sin in your life. You will continually make progress in killing habitual sin because there is now this brand new absolute distaste about sin whenever you're involved in it that you simply must stop. You must stop. You will not do it anymore. You will not willfully, continually give yourself over to sin. This is, what, this is what it looks like, to say it positively. This is what it looks like. It means that the love that we have for Jesus is overflowing so much that we live, we express this love in acts of ongoing obedience and worship to Jesus. This is what it means. This is what dying to sin means. I don't live like that anymore. Instead, I am capable. This is so crazy. I am capable of literally living a life of love expressed by obedience and worship to Jesus. Capable of it now. No non-believer or not yet believer or however you ever want to say it, not yet a Christian, is capable of that. So here's where we're going to get a little bit interesting. Um, I laid out the question for us there in verse 1. And I said, Paul's going to give us two answers. The first answer in, is in verses 3 through 10. The second answer is in verses 11 through 14. We're going to look at that first answer right now. And as we look at this first answer, um, what he's doing, I think, is counterintuitive. I, I, I was not expecting this. So usually if I'm going to tell you, here's how you got to kill sin in your life. This is, the, this is what you need to do to kill sin in your life. You would think it's going to involve my hands and my feet. It's going to involve going places. It's going to involve doing things. It's going to involve, you know, taking the computer and throwing it against the wall. Or it's going to involve actions by feet and hands. That's, that's generally what we think whenever we're sinning. The way to fix that is actions by feet and hands. Paul, however, um, is going to do something I, I wasn't expecting. He's going to tell you, answer number one, the way you kill sin in your life is start thinking. So let me show you how he says that. Um, you're going to see it in three places. He's actually going to give you three things to think about. Three things to think about. Look in verse 3. Verse 3. Do you not know? So he's going to talk about knowledge. Look at verse 6. We know. Look at verse 8. 9. 9. We know. So the way that Paul and this first answer is going to tell you how you need to stop sinning is you need knowledge. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting. This isn't new knowledge. Paul is going to say, the way you kill sin is to think about knowledge, to think, not do stuff with your hands and feet, but think. And the things you think about are actually things you already know. The way I'm supposed to kill sin is think, Paul, about three things I already know. That's, that's your... That's your action plan for killing sin. Think about three things I already know. Yes, it is. And I want you to see these three things. This is, this is mind-blowing information. Mind-blowing. So the first way 
The first way that Paul attacks Christian sinning is by addressing our mind. Oh, back, 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 back. Addressing our minds. He, he, he wants us to know stuff. He wants us to know stuff. So let's look at the first thing he wants us to know. Don't go forward. All right. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we're still under question one. And the way that Paul is answering you, yes, you do not sin anymore. And the way that, the first way you're going to do that is by I'm going to address your mind. And there's three things I want you to think about. And that first thing that I want you to think about is your baptism. I want you to think about your baptism. Now, this is, this is very important here. Um, the word baptize here, um, where it says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? That word baptize is crucial. Um, the word baptize is actually immerse. It's actually immerse. So, What's happened here is baptize is actually a Greek word. It's not an English word. You think it's an English word because we say it. It's actually a Greek word, baptizo. And just like agape is love, we take the word agape and we translate it into our English word, love. But baptizo, they just took that and said, well, to translate it is the word immerse, but we don't want to do that. We're just going to take this Greek word and make it an English word. We're going to transliterate it, and we're going to say baptize. The reason why your Bibles do this is because as soon as they just put baptize in there rather than immerse, if they put immerse, then they've kind of thrown off half of Christianity because half of Christianity doesn't immerse when they baptize. They sprinkle. And so instead of um, making a controversy, we just take that Greek word and stick it in there as an English and make it an English word. And we just say baptize. But the word means immerse. We have two modes in Christianity for baptism, immersion and sprinkle. Now, here's the thing. There is a Greek word for sprinkle, rontizo. Baptizo, rontizo. Baptize, immerse, rontizo, sprinkle. So here, Paul is using the word immerse. He said, I want you to think of your immersion. It sounds like I'm, you know, I know what he's doing. He's grinding his Baptist axe. He's wanting everybody to understand, you know, you're supposed to be baptized after salvation by immersion. That is what I believe, but this is, this is why. I want you to hear the other mode. Listen, listen to if it was the other mode. We'll read it first in, in, in ESV. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism buried, buried. That sounds like I'm under something. But anyway, listen, it wouldn't make sense if we said all of us who have been sprinkled into Christ Jesus were sprinkled into his death. We were buried with him, therefore, by our sprinkling. That, that doesn't even make sense, right? It doesn't paint the picture that Paul's, remember, what's Paul trying to get me to do? Stop sinning with this big concept of baptism. So what he's wanting you to read it is, um, do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were then immersed down in his death and we were buried therefore with him by our immersion into death. So 
The way you kill sin is realize that you, when you were baptized, were literally immersed down in Christ Jesus. Whenever I, I baptize people, even the really big dudes like Sean last week, I'm like, I'm taking you all the way under. You're going to have to help me. But I don't want even a hair to kind of be sticking up. And it's all theological because every bit of you is down. And when you're down inside the water, then Jesus is all around you. I'm immersed in Jesus. I just, I'm not out in here and just kind of sprinkled and I can still. Instead, I'm all the way down in here. Where can I go where water's not around? And if I've been baptized into Jesus, where can I go where Jesus is not all around? That's a huge concept to understand stop sinning. You've been immersed into Jesus. Jesus is everywhere around you. So it's interesting. He's going to attack stop sinning by knowledge, by realizing you are immersed down in Jesus and there's not a place where he should not be all the way around you. So we have been immersed. And you even hear this language of 6-4 whenever we baptize people, that you're buried with therefore with Christ in baptism and you're raised to walk in newness of life. These are the words that we actually say whenever we baptize people. And what, what Paul is wanting us to see is the first way that you address sin is by thinking on what you already have, knowledge of, my baptism. What did my baptism say? That I have literally been immersed down in Jesus. And I think on being immersed down in Jesus and no longer is that sin coming to me attractive. I find that completely distasteful because what's true of me right now and always been true of me as a Christian, I'm immersed in Christ. That's the first thing he tells you, to think about something, literally our baptism. He tells us to think about something else. Verse six, we know, so we're talking about knowledge again, that our old self, this is our sinful self, the old man versus the, the new creation, the kinekatesis versus the old man. Um, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. All right. Um, this is a pretty complex verse. This body of sin doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean the body is sinful. And therefore, every act that the body does is inherently sinful. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that because Jesus had a body and Jesus, when he did stuff, wasn't inherently sinful. So it's saying the, the old man and the sinful inclinations make my body do sinful things. In other words, let's just take the two best examples, sex and, and food. Um, there's a way to do those things in the body that are sinful, premarital sex, sex outside of marriage, um, etc., or eating too much, both of those are sinful. And those are things that you can do in the body of sin. But those things of themselves aren't inherently sinful. If you're in, a, if you're in your, your marriage, then you're, whenever you have sex, that's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So you're not carrying out the body of sin in doing that. So not everything that the body does is inherently sinful. Those are actually good things. Or same with food. There's a way to eat, I mean, a nice juicy steak to the glory of God without indulging myself too much and gluttony, which is hard not to glutton on a steak. But like, it's to eat a steak to the glory of God and say, Lord, tastes and explosions. Wow, that's good. And giving God all the glory for it. So eating obviously can't be sinful because we have to do it to live. So when we say that we know our old self was crucified, we're talking about our old sinful self it, that was put to death or crucified in order that the things that our body does that are sinful might be brought to nothing. We'll stop those things 
And however you understand that first half, this last part of verse six still is a pretty straightforward conclusion. So that, that means, what's the point? Here it is. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's the whole idea we've been talking about the whole time. God doesn't want us to sin anymore. So, if A, in three through five, he wants us to point to our uh, baptism. Here, he wants to talk about our crucifixion. That six through seven should say six through eight. Sorry. Um, Typo. Uh, And you can see in verse eight, now if we have died with Christ, so think about that. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with Jesus on the cross. I'm going to unpack that just for a second because that sounds like, what? Um, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I think one of the best ways, this is the only place Paul talks about us dying on the cross with Jesus. Like, uh, I didn't die on the cross. Got no holes. Um, Still alive. Wasn't even around 2,000 years ago. I get it. Um, let's, let's understand what Paul's saying. He says this exact same thing in Galatians 2.20, close to the same thing in Galatians 2.20, and this is how he says it. I, he literally just says it straightforward, I have been crucified with Christ. So in a sense, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, I was nailed to the cross with him. No, we gotta be careful. You didn't make atonement for sin. <laughs> Your dying on the cross wasn't like, oh, thank goodness Jesus and you died on the cross. Now sin's atoned for and forgiven. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was the sacrifice and the atonement. But in a sense, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. So what does that mean? It means, uh, my first thought is, uh, no, I'm still alive. Like here I am. I'm walking around. I didn't die. So what are you saying? And then he says this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I feel like I'm still alive though, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, it's Jesus who lives in me and not me because I still feel like it's me. I still, when people call me, they don't say, hey, Jesus. They say, Fud. Uh, my paycheck doesn't say, you know, Jesus. It says John Chambers. Like, so it's still me, right? So what, what are you saying, Paul, that I was crucified with Jesus and because I was crucified, it's not even me anymore. It's Jesus. What does that mean? This is what he means. The life I now live in the flesh. So he's still saying that you're living that now. You're still living in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, of course. But this is what it means. The life I live now in the flesh, here it is. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that means the life that I'm living is a constant reminder that I am living under faith. I'm living under belief. I am continually believing that Jesus in Jesus is the one who was supposed to die for me. So if we go back over here to verse six, Paul tells you the way that you're supposed to kill sin is to remember your crucifixion, that you were crucified along with Jesus. And since Jesus was crucified and his crucifixion um, paid the ultimate price for all of us to be saved and therefore um, because he was perfect, that was given to us. We now, because we, are, we were crucified with him, continually live a life of faith that Christ took it for us. All of his righteousness has been given to us. And so when we remember our crucifixion, we remember, just like our baptism, that we were immersed in Christ, we remember in the crucifixion that all the righteousness of Christ has been then given to me. So here comes sin for temptation. I literally have the righteousness of Christ, sin. It's all in the mind though, right? This is what I think is the most counterintuitive, breathtaking part of this text. This is not what I thought. I thought, kill sin, 
do something with my hands and feet. He's saying, kill sin, think. Think about your baptism and your crucifixion. Then he's got one other thing he wants to think about. Now, those first two are about us. This third one he wants to think about, he wants us to think about Jesus. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So the third thing he wants to think about is Jesus' resurrection, verse 8 through 10. This is astounding, right? Paul's, Paul's like plan, action plan for killing sin is to think about your baptism, your crucifixion, and Jesus' resurrection. That's how you're supposed to kill sin. We'll talk about how in a second. He gets to that in 11 through 14. But I still think that's amazing. And he wants us to think about Jesus' resurrection. Why? Why Jesus' resurrection? He says it right there in that verse. We know that Christ being raised from the dead. Here it is. That's little, those little four words. Don't, don't pass over that so fast. You know it. Will never die again. There it is. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus' resurrection is the key for you to understand how you'll never sin anymore. Okay, explain to me how. All right, so other people died in the Bible and were, and were brought back to life, right? Lazarus, Eutychus, y'all know about Eutychus? In Acts, Eutychus, Paul preached for so long, Eutychus is sitting in the second or third story window, I don't know. Um, it says that Paul literally preached for so long that Eutychus fell asleep in the window and fell out of the window down to his death, death by preaching. For like, he was dead, like dead, dead. And Paul felt so bad, he ran out to him on the ground and like literally raised him from the dead. And the way you can remember Eutychus, my professor always told me, because Eutychus too, a few fell out the third story window and died. So like, but there's a difference, right? Jesus was dead and was resurrected. Lazarus was dead and was resurrected. Eutychus was dead and was resurrected. And, and, and there's some others in the Bible. What's the difference? Here's the difference. Whenever Lazarus was resurrected, or whenever Eutychus was resurrected, really, that was just more resuscitation. You know why? They died again. They died again. Jesus, however, who was just as human as Lazarus, just as human as Eutychus, when he resurrected, even though he's human, he never died again. But these other two did. And Paul looks at that and he says, that's the key to stop sinning. See the difference between the two? You're like, no. Okay, let me explain it to you. Here's the difference between the two. Christ, whenever he was resurrected, not resuscitated, but resurrected and was never going to die again as a human, that means he was resurrected then to an entirely different plane altogether. Because he could never die, this is a new plane because death now has no mastery over him and he can never die again. All the other people, they die again. But Christ was resurrected to this new plane where death has no rule, no reign, no mastery over him. And Paul says, in the same way, you have also been resurrected. And as you've been resurrected, just like Christ's resurrected, resurrection, you have been raised up into an entirely new plane, just like Jesus, where not death, but sin has, just like death has no rule over him, sin has no rule, no reign, no mastery over you whatsoever. Christ's death has secured this, just like Jesus' resurrection, to this new plane altogether where sin has no rule or reign over you anymore. The way that sin or the lack of sin's ability to touch you is just like the lack of death's ability to touch Jesus. Jesus can never die again, ever. It has no dominion. And in the exact, exact same way, think about it. 
how, how is it that Jesus could ever die? Think about how absolute it is that Jesus will never die again. In the same way, that's how absolute it is that you have been raised out to sin and sin has no power upon you. You literally have the ability to disobey sin's sinful impulses, no matter how just amazingly attractive it might look based on Jesus' resurrection. So Paul says, when those sinful impulses come, think about your baptism. You're immersed in Jesus. Think about your crucifixion. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. Not only that, think about Jesus' resurrection, how death can't touch him in the same way sin can't touch you. That's pretty astounding. That's Paul's answer to why you should never sin anymore in verses 1 through 10. Verses 11 through 14, he's going to give a second answer. And it's all based on the first one. You ever heard the phrase, knowledge is power? Knowledge is power, it's true. Knowledge, given to us in the second answer, gives, the first answer, gives us the power in the second answer. John Stott said this, and this is, this sounds almost heretical. I was going to tweet it, but without the, like, connections, people would think I'm crazy. Um, This is what John Stott, writing right here in this particular section, said, The major secret to holy living is, what would you say? Like we would all say all kinds of stuff. The gospel, Jesus, Holy Spirit. We'd say all these things, right? He says the major secret, the major secret to holy living is in the mind. That is not what I was thinking. That's what Paul's thinking in verse 6. Now, remember, chapter 6 is part of a whole. I am not discounting the work of spirit that's told to us in verse 8. That's God's part. We're talking about our part, though. And he says, Paul's saying, the major way that you're going to kill sin in your life is not primarily by your feet and hands, but with your mind. Telling yourself what is true of you and thinking of knowledge that you already have. He's not telling you to learn new knowledge. He's telling you to think about your baptism. Think about your crucifixion and and Jesus' resurrection. Think about those things. As soon as sin comes and the, the beauty and enticement that you think sin is comes, Think about those things. And then you'll see that those beautiful, enticing things are not at all, but they're wretchedly ugly. And then in verse 11 through 14, he tells us the power. So the first way is knowledge. Number two is this. The second way Paul attacks Christian sinning is by reminding us of the power that the knowledge of those three things in verses three through two. 3 through 10, give us. When we remember those things and we remind ourselves of that knowledge, having that knowledge literally gives us power then to not sin. That's, that's pretty crazy. I'm talking about your power. I haven't gotten into chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit's power. I'm talking about the power of your mind to not sin as you think about those three things. Mind-blowing. So let's look at it. Let's understand it. The key words are right there in the first bit of verse 11. So, that so, by the way, is the therefore, you know, you know, the magic word therefore in the Bible is big. So, or un, or therefore, you must, here it is, consider yourselves. That's that's the key thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This consider, in all your different translations, is 
reckon or consider or regard or look upon or count or recall or ponder or grasp or register the truths. That's what we mean by consider. We must consider, we must count myself really and reckon and believe that this has actually been given to my account. What I'm saying is literally true. He says, you must literally consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is, you have the knowledge. What's already been told to you is true, but it's just been so much a part of your experience. You literally can't conceive what that life over there looks like because you've never walked over into it. And if you were to just walk over into it, that's when you would have the power to be able to start living this way. There's an illustration. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Let me say this first before the illustration. What I'm saying is, chapters one through five, justification, that what you and I need to do to kill sin is preaching to ourselves the justification that God has declared of us. And it's so powerful, those three things, baptism, uh, crucifixion, and Jesus' resurrection, that's all part of justification. Those are all things about what's been declared of us. We preach those things to ourselves, and it's so powerful. The implication from this text is, if I preach those things, if I preach the gospel to myself, it literally gives me the power to stop sinning. That's, that's why we say in your community groups, tell each other the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself, because it literally gives you the power to stop sinning. Here's an illustration so we can understand what we're saying. Um, the difference between giving a position and then actually realizing that you're in the position. Because I can give you a position, but until you literally realize you're in the position, that's when the power happens. United States of America, 150 years ago, there was slavery. Um, Then came the Civil War. So before, they were declared as slaves. But then after um, the Civil War, what, what happened is they were declared free. Now, what, what seemed to happen in the lives of maybe up into the thousands of slaves is their experience, they had grown so old and had lived in this life for so long, their experiences, they had no concepts of living a life any other way other than being a slave. That was what, the, where they lived. But the position that had actually been given to them, this is what I'm saying, this is the difference between being given a position and then realizing you're in that position. But... but They weren't slaves anymore. What had happened is that they had actually been given freedom. But those that were older, likely in their thousands, still lived a life that looked like slavery. They found it very, very difficult to understand the new status. The younger didn't. But those that had only known that life for so long, they found it very difficult difficult to understand the new status that had actually been given. And I think that's the case for some of us. We've lived in such a mindset of slavery to sin that we've never even experienced freedom. That we don't, there's no concept for us to be able to understand, to walk over to what's actually been declared of us and live in it. That's the power. Whenever we preach justification to ourselves and we get in our mind, we walk away from being slaves. And when we do, whenever we, as I said, not just being given a position of righteousness, but realizing that we have that position of righteousness, that's when we have the power to actually start killing sin. Versus chapter 8, of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, says it this way. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here in his word, in this particular section, that if we are in Christ Jesus, we are no longer in Adam. That means you're no longer in sin. 
We are no longer under the rule and reign of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not yet realize who I am. So therefore, back up to verse 11, consider yourself. He says, realize it, reckon it, like count it, make it known in your head. This is who you are. Stop living like a slave. You're not a slave anymore. You're actually free. Count that in your head. And when you count that knowledge in your head, that's when you actually get the power to start living a life that sees sin less and less where it really is dead in your life. Stott says it this way. Oh, this is so good. John Stott. We are to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ. That's putting an end to it and its career. Like when Lattimore's got hit in the leg, his career was over. He is no longer a football player anymore. You are no longer a sinner anymore. In other words, he says, we are to recall, ponder, consider, grasp, register these truths into our head and to our, they are so integral into our mindset that a return to the old life of slavery is unthinkable. Imagine this, a, a, some, a slave that lived 150 years ago who realizes that they're free, walks over into freedom and gets the taste of freedom. I do not have to do what the slave masters tell me to do anymore. I can do anything. Imagine how unthinkable if he just said, you know what? Being free is just no good. I want to go back over and live in slavery again. I want a white man to enslave me and tell me what to do and beat me and my kids and my children. That's unthinkable. That's horrible. In the same way, when we walk over to sin as a Christian, that's what we're doing. That's unthinkable. Stott says, Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults think that they can actually return to being a child. Or they should, they should do this uh, just like married people should not want to return to their singleness. Or even a discharged prisoner should want to return living in their prison cell. When we realize what's been declared of us, that actually gives us power to walk out and live that out. And now, as it says... And verse 12 and following, consider yourselves alive to God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. That's literally telling you, don't let sin be in your life because it doesn't have to be. Do not, to make you obey their passions. That means you literally have the ability to obey God and disobey sin now. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness because you have the ability to actually to present your, yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You can present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, not unrighteous. You now have the ability to choose to obey God and not sin. And then it says in 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. I want you to think about this. If you find yourself entrenched in willful sin or ongoing sin or any kind of sin, you just find it absolutely debilitating. Think about what he's saying in verse 14. Sin, as a believer, has no dominion over you. You, you, you do not have to live under its rule and reign at all. At all. Because we're not under law, but under grace. I'm gonna close with a quote from Tyndale. William Tyndale, about 500 years ago, said, remember, that Christ made not this atonement that you should just anger God again, conceivably by going back into sin. Neither did he die for your sins that you should still live in them. 
neither did he cleanse you that you should return just as a swine to your old puddle again, but that you should be a new creature and live a new life. 6-4, live in newness of life. After now, living after the will of God and not after the will of your flesh. Christian, one of the cores of sanctification is how you think. It's how you think. You literally, Paul is telling you, and God, that you can see sin be defeated simply by training your mind to think correctly about who you are. And that gives you the power that you don't walk over into slavery anymore. That's remarkable. And perhaps something that you can pray to the Lord, help me think like that, God. Help me think the way I'm supposed to think to kill sin. That's what I want. Train me to think about my baptism, my crucifixion, and Jesus' resurrection. Train me to think and then walk away from slavery and into what's been declared to me. And let me have the power then now to not sin. For those of you that don't know Jesus, I invite you to talk to me so I can talk to you about how you can receive forgiveness of all your sin and ability to kill sin in your life. For those of you that are believers, think about this. Sin has no rule or reign over you. It has no right to say, you're mine. Instead, God has all the right now to say that you're his. So let's worship him because of that. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. I pray for us all because this is largely an exercise that's cerebral killing and killing sin. It's all about thinking. It's largely about how we as believers use our minds for your glory and how our minds inform our bodies. And so sometimes this can be tough to understand, God. I pray for my friends here and myself that we would give ourselves to the hard work of thinking about who we are, that we are immersed in Christ, that we have been given completely the righteousness of Christ, and that in the same way, death has absolutely no way that it could ever touch Jesus. That's what's true of sin. It can't touch us. And the war is over. And we live in these small battles. Give us victory even in the battles, Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.